Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. On our last episode, Philip the Good managed to build and consolidate the state of Burgundy, and he held direct rule over significant territory by the time he died at age 70. His son Charles became duke and aimed to grow Burgundy like his father and grandfather had, but he was less patient, less willing to use diplomacy, and more willing to try to conquer his neighbors, with disastrous results. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Comments or questions can be directed there, or send me an email at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com. And speaking of all that, I did want to thank uh, listener Carla, who made a donation, a very nice donation. Thank you, Carla. There is a donate button on the Almost Forgotten website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com, which you can find on the right-hand side, somewhat towards the top below the banner. So if you feel like donating, thank you. And with that, this is Season 6, Episode 5, Burgundy Part 5, Charles the Bold. And this is the Almost Forgotten. Charles was born in the Ducal Palace in Dijon on November 11th, 1433. He was Philip's only surviving legitimate son, although the duke had plenty of illegitimate ones. His mother was the impressive Isabella of Portugal, Philip's third wife. Charles was their third son. The first two each died around the age of one. Charles was almost immediately given the title of Count of Charolais. Philip had held the title, and it was the one given to the presumptive heir to the Duchy of Burgundy. He was also named a Knight of the Golden Fleece, and to add to these lofty titles, he was given a robust education. He was taught by several prominent teachers, both in scholarly pursuits and the more knightly kinds. He read, he studied, he loved history and rhetoric. He learned how to speak Flemish, although his personality kept him from being as popular in the Low Countries as his father was. Charles was a more distant person, less likely to be seen as a man of the people, the way his father and especially his grandfather were. Calmette goes on, quote, Unlike his father, he was an extremely hard worker, but while he had his father's hasty temper, he had not inherited the good nature which enabled Philip to forgive and forget, unquote. He was first married when he was seven to the twelve-year-old daughter of King Charles VII of France. She lived under the care of Charles the Bold's mother, Isabella, but she died about six years later. He was then married to his cousin, Isabella of Bourbon. This marriage took place after the Burgundy-Armagnac Civil War, so marrying a Bourbon was sort of part of the truce. Together they had one child, Mary, known as Mary of Burgundy. Remember that name. Charles began jousting before he reached 20. He had a bout with the famous Jacques de la Lange, which was stopped when both broke their lances and the Duchess made Philip call off the rest as a draw. He was described by a contemporary as hot-headed, but polite and religious, and smart and very capable, better at both chess and at drawing the bowstring than any of his pals. 
In other words, he was the perfect combination of his brilliant mother and his soldierly father. Unfortunately, he lacked the strategic vision of his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather. He was an intelligent man, though, and this, coupled with his love of warfare, yielded some important translations of classical writings. He was interested in reading ancient depictions of Alexander the Great, Pompey, and Julius Caesar, and commissioned maybe the first French translations of Caesar's Gallic War, Xenophon's Cyropedia, and Letters from Cicero, among other things. He also enjoyed music greatly, although it was pointed out by many that while he was a great musician, he was not a great singer. In the late 1450s and early 1460s, though, excluded from formal state affairs thanks to the influence of the Croix family, Charles spent much of his time in the Burgundian Netherlands. He was working the leadership there, trying to secure his rights as eventual heir to the state, which of course made his father suspicious. Finally, however, in September of 1464, father and son made peace, and Charles was named the lieutenant governor, sort of the regent for his father. Philip was declining, and Charles began to take charge of the Burgundian state. His wife, Isabella of Bourbon, died in 1465 in Antwerp and was eventually given a lavish tomb in the abbey there. Her tomb, too lavish for Calvinist tastes, was one of the great works of art smashed during the Bialdin storm of the Dutch Revolt in 1566. She was about 31 when she died, and Charles was almost 32. As he began to take the reins of state from his father, Charles was thrust into a conflict possibly a civil war. First, with his father fully on his side, he went to Brussels along with his half-brother and began seizing towns and estates that were under Croix control, arresting some of their allies. They fled, and he had fully taken control of Burgundy. Good thing, too, because they were loyal to France, and Charles was in the midst of a conflict with the crown. Charles, in fact, acted as sort of a leader to the French nobility as they attempted to form a coalition against their king, Louis XI. Louis thought that his father had been weak-willed and too lenient, and he was prepared to fix that as soon as he took the crown. He was attempting to consolidate his power and make himself more of an absolutist king. The French nobility weren't exactly used to that, and they bristled under his reign. See, we often tend to think of France as, well, France. But as I hope this series has made abundantly clear, France was a little more like the way we might think of the Holy Roman Empire. Sure, there was a king, not an emperor, and yeah, he wasn't voted on, but it was a kingdom made up of various powerful feudal states, duchies and counties and the like. And the rulers of these places wanted France to stay like the Holy Roman Empire, with a weak central government, rather than with a powerful king who can tell them what to do whenever he wanted. So as Louis started messing about with the established officials and administrations, Charles and the other lords formed what was known as the League of the Public Wheel, or Public Welfare, or Public Good, however you want to translate it. This name was not chosen out of nowhere. The lords wanted everyone to know just who they were fighting on behalf of. Charles was able to ally with the Dukes of Bourbon, Brittany, and Berry, among others. Now, the Duke of Berry was a different Duke than the one from the first few episodes who was one of King John the Good's sons. This Duke of Berry 
was King Louis's younger brother, and he was also named Charles. He was the instigator of this revolt, even though Charles the Bold was really the leader. They gathered forces rather quickly, and Louis got wind of what was happening. He marched out with an army 30,000 strong to try to smack down Burgundy before Charles the Bold could join with the other forces. Louis learned that as Charles was advancing from Burgundy, Barry and Brittany were attempting to link up with him. So Louis sent off his army to deal with this, and then tried to attack Charles the Bold at Montlhery. Charles probably could have waited in a defensive position for his allies to come and change the odds. At this point, the two armies were pretty evenly matched in size. But they don't call him Charles the Bold for nothing, and he was eager to fight. On July 16, 1465, fight they did. The battle was close, and at some point the king was thought to have been captured, but he lifted up the visor to his helmet and encouraged his side to fight on, preventing what would have been a panicked retreat. It was still a mess of confusion. At some point, Charles thought he had won and went charging off to run down stragglers or whatever when the French army began to coalesce again. Charles had made a tactical error, pursuing the fleeing flank, despite the advice of some wiser counselors, and when he returned to the battlefield, he was surprised to see Louis's men still holding their own. The battle ended with no clear winner. Vaughn called it bloody but indecisive although Charles let the opportunity to crush Louis then and there slip through his fingers. The French made an organized and disciplined retreat in order to head back to protect Paris, and the Burgundians were about as equally beaten up, but they held the field. Charles gained prestige. Burgundy had faced the royal army alone and held the field in the end. But Louis made it back to Paris in time, and while Barry and Brittany were able to link up with Charles, they could not take the fortified capital. After a few days of bombardment from both sides, a truce was declared, and Louis went out to speak with Charles. Louis apologized for the way one of his counselors had treated Charles earlier. He was deferential, he was flattering, and peace was at hand. By October, negotiations were finalized on a treaty, and Burgundy gained some pretty good concessions. Now, you may be thinking, hey Louis, You thought your dad was weak, but here you are with this treaty being all friendly and deferential to your rebellious vassals. What gives? Well, the difference is, Louis planned on abiding by as few of these things he swore to as possible. He wasn't weak in his mind, although he may have been dishonorable. Get these nobles and their armies back home, and I can slowly take away their power, instead of trying to do it all at once like I did the first time. This is probably why he has several nicknames, including Louis the Cunning, and one bestowed by his rivals, the Universal Spider. Speaking of spinning webs, in an attempt to distract Burgundy, Louis convinced the people of Liège to revolt against their prince bishop. Now, technically he was a Bourbon, and wasn't directly under Burgundian control, but it was basically controlled by Burgundy. Charles marched a small force up to Liège, and while he couldn't take the fortress where his opponents were holed up, he sent his army out to do some good old-fashioned pillaging of the countryside. This made the Liège rebels come out and fight, and the Burgundian army was victorious. A treaty was signed, and the Burgundians put the Bourbon prince bishop back into place. A year later, in 1466, Burgundian forces again were sent in when Dinant, a city within the prince bishopric, rose up, and Charles once again had to put down a revolt. 
Although this seemed to be less of a battle, as all I've seen about it is that they threw 800 burgers into the River Meuse. Philip the Good actually joined for this one, carried on a litter to observe the peasant crushing. But it was the end of the line for Philip, and he died in 1467. Charles, between his victories with the League of the Public Wheel and in Liège, was already a well-known and powerful force in France at this point. Charles inherited a few titles. He became Duke of Burgundy and Count of Franche-Comte, the imperial part of Burgundy. He was also Duke of Brabant, Limburg, and Lothier, as well as Luxembourg. And he was Count of Flanders, Holland, Zeeland, Haino, and Artois. He controlled territory from the North Sea down through the Low Countries to as far south as Lake Geneva, although his territory wasn't contiguous. On the French side, Champagne, a royal territory, stood in his way. On the imperial side, it was the Duchy of Lorraine, a duchy named after Lotharingia, the very state he and his father were trying to recreate. Soon after becoming Duke, Charles found another bride. This time it was Margaret of the House of York. She was the sister of King Edward IV, the King of England, who had successfully overthrown Henry VI, Burgundy's old ally-slash-baby English king. This was the Yorkist supremacy part of the War of the Roses, which I'm not going into any more detail on. But suffice it to say, he was throwing his old Lancastrian allies under the bus with this marriage alliance. Charles was himself the great-great-grandson on his mother's side of John of Gaunt himself, the first Lancastrian. But when it comes to increasing the power of Burgundy, well, anything's in play, ain't it? They were married in Bruges on July 3rd, 1468. Later that year, King Louis went to meet with Charles in a town called Peron to lay some more charm on him. Firstly, Charles was determined to attack the towns along the Somme River, which had been contested for a few decades, and Louis was trying to get him to chill out. He also didn't want Charles deciding to formally ally with the Duke's new brother-in-law, the King of England. But as they were meeting, news arrived of another revolt in the Prince Bishopric of Liège. According to Calmette, Louis was meeting with Charles when the men he sent to try and stir up yet another rebellion in Liège did their job too quickly. Seeing Burgundy about to attack France, the Liègeois thought Charles would be too distracted to deal with them, and they seized the Prince Bishop that they all hated and that the Burgundians kept in place despite this. But the news also came that the king's men were seen among the rioters, and soon everyone realized Louis was responsible for this. Charles was furious. His first reaction was to close the gates to the castle in the town of Peron, where they were all meeting. The king was a prisoner, in the same town where Charles the Simple had been taken prisoner 500 years earlier and had died. Charles wanted to have him killed, but his chamberlain, a sort of medieval chief of staff, calmed him down. If he had killed him, the crown would have passed to the king's younger brother, Charles the Duke of Berry, one of Charles the Bold's primary allies in the League of Public Weal. This would have certainly changed Burgundy's position vis-a-vis the king of France, assuming he didn't feel the need to avenge his older brother, as Charles the Bold would have been the kingmaker. Who knows what path on which Burgundy would have been set if that occurred. Richard Vaughan, in his book Charles the Bold, states that Louis came to Peron to convince Charles to not join in the other princes 
who were again fighting against the crown, and that Charles had already dispatched an army to deal with Liège. In this version of the story, Charles was worried that if he didn't hold Louis in some sort of captivity, making him come and help against Liège, that the king would attack Burgundy when he was out in Liège. Either way, Charles calmed down enough to realize he didn't want people calling him the Kingslayer all the time. However, there was still a chance that all the things that the League of Public Weal had been rebelling for could be negotiated. Barry, and I'll still call him the Duke of Barry even though he was really just Charles Valois or Charles of France because after the first rebellion, King Louis had taken away all his titles, but I don't really want to keep distinguishing one Charles from another. So he's the Duke of Barry. Barry was holed up in Brittany as he needed somewhere safe while the king was still mad at him. Charles the Bold could have sent out men to get Barry and the rest of the league and really have Louis over a barrel. But Louis, the ever-charming universal spider, was able to convince Charles to meet with him before any of this happened. And in October, a treaty was signed between Charles and the king, without inviting the other nobles. Charles was given more lands in Picardy, which neighbored his territory in Arras. Charles didn't involve the other nobles, but he didn't forget Barry, who was given the Duchy of Champagne, very close to Burgundy. Louis reneged on that, though, but he did end up with Aquitaine, although I'm still going to keep calling him Barry for the few years he remains alive. And as a final concession, Louis had to go up with an army, along with Charles, to crush the revolt in Liège. But Vaughn points out that, quote, the king's subsequent actions and negotiations showed that he never had the smallest intention of abiding by its terms, unquote. Well, except for the taking his army to crush the Liège uprising, which he really had no way to squirm out of. And within two weeks of signing the Treaty of Peron, Louis was watching the execution of people he had pushed to revolt. Charles was, like his father, one of the most powerful men in all of Western Europe. And like his father, he looked to expand his power. In 1469, he signed a treaty with the Habsburg Duke of Austria, who also owned lands along the Rhine. In exchange for 50,000 florins, the treaty ceded lands in and around southern Alsace, which sort of helped extend Burgundian lands to the north and east of French Comte. He also began negotiating marriage for his daughter Mary to Maximilian, the son of the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor. But because the Duke of Berry, now actually the Duke of Champagne, came calling, Charles decided that would be the best match for his daughter. Champagne was a large region which bordered Burgundy to the north and sat directly south of Haino and Artois, all Burgundian possessions. If Berry married Mary, Charles would have quite an ally helping link the Low Countries with Burgundy. But as I mentioned, the king was able to squirm out of that commitment and gave Berry the Duchy of Aquitaine instead. King Louis also saw that he was soon going to be surrounded by his so-called friends and allies, and he went as far as sending envoys to the Pope to get that marriage disallowed. He was not successful, and the engagement stayed in place, for the time being. Meanwhile, John II, King of Aragon, was trying to form a coalition against France, as Louis had been sticking his nose into Spanish business. With the marriage of his son Ferdinand, to Isabella, the daughter of the King of Castile and Leon, he had another Spanish ally in the fight. He approached the English, as well as Burgundy, and it looked like an international coalition was forming to take down Louis. 
Louis, for his part, was all the while working to get the English on his side, promising that they could have the Low Countries once Charles the Bold was out of the way. The War of the Roses was going hot and heavy, and Edward IV lost his throne, fleeing to the Low Countries. Charles tried to stay out of it. Hey, remember, I'm part Lancastrian. I'm cool with you all tossing out Edward of York. But as Edward pulled together an army to retake the throne, Charles relented and gave him money and ships, and Edward was able to become king again. So despite the backs and forths, Burgundy was never truly at odds with England. Meanwhile, Louis had subdued some of his most dangerous princely enemies, namely Brittany and Berry, so he turned his attention back to Charles. In late 1470, before Edward retook the throne, Louis issued a statement saying that Charles was working with Edward and therefore had broken treaty obligations, and that all agreements with Burgundy were null and void for all French princes. It was no less than a declaration of war. Louis surprised Burgundy and took a few cities, but he didn't press his advantage, fearful of an attack from Brittany. And then Edward retook the English throne, and Louis knew he would no longer have an English ally to invade the Netherlands. He backed off, and a truce was arranged. Soon after, Charles and Edward renewed the Anglo-Burgundian alliance. Aragon was pulled in, King John was made a Knight of the Golden Fleece, and then, in June of 1472, the Duke of Berry, the king's brother, the fiancé to Mary of Burgundy, died. It was probably natural causes, but everyone said Louis poisoned him because, you know, universal spider. Charles used it as a casus belli, although it really was more of a rallying cry. Louis had already invaded Aquitaine to attack Barry, and Charles had pulled together an army. Anyway, they marched out from Arras and invaded Louis's holdings in France. Charles took the town of Nell and slaughtered many of its inhabitants. He then besieged Beauvais, but they were able to hold him off. According to Vaughan, Quote, Beauvais had been well defended by over a thousand men-at-arms and some four thousand archers, not to mention her heroic womenfolk, who were afterward granted by a grateful crown the privileges of wearing whatever clothes they pleased, and of preceding the menfolk in civic processions, unquote. Leaving Beauvais, Charles marched well beyond the Somme, through northern France, laying waste to the region. I haven't really mentioned it much, but this is the sort of signature thing people did in France during the Hundred Years' War, by the way. Then they negotiated an armistice, and he withdrew. Charles's Spanish, English, and Italian allies had not joined in, though, and he really couldn't take France by himself, so it was time for him to slowly back out of the room. In 1472, he intervened in a conflict on his eastern flank, he had been actually most concerned with imperial affairs for the prior few years. In 1469, he exchanged letters with the king of Bohemia, who was fighting with the emperor. Charles's aim was pretty high. He wanted to be the next king of the Romans, essentially the emperor, after Frederick died. And it was not outlandish. He was one of the four or five most powerful imperial lords. And his youth and energy, and powerful army, was viewed as a potential bulwark against Turkish invasions. As for this specific conflict, Arnold, the Duke of Gelders and Count of Zutphen, another noble from the House of Egmont, had been battling his son for possession of the duchy for a decade. 
Charles reinstated Arnold and got the old man to name him heir to the territory in exchange for 300,000 guilders. Burgundy would also help the Duke of Gelders regain his uncooperative territory, marching an army in, his attack culminating in a successful three-week siege of the town of Nijmegen. Arnold died a year later, and Charles inherited the territories. Next, Charles looked to expand into the Duchy of Lorraine, which happened to sit right in between his Burgundian and Low Countries possessions. Grabbing Lorraine would make his holdings contiguous, and the duke there had just died without any legitimate children. Some say he was poisoned by Louis because of his close ties with Charles. Charles began negotiations with the Holy Roman Emperor to see about perhaps gaining this land, how much it would cost, and to be named a king, emperor, after Frederick died. Emperor Frederick was amenable to giving Charles a crown of some sort, similar to what he'd discussed with Philip the Good, and in September of 1473, he arrived in Trier to discuss possibilities with Charles. Charles really wanted to be King of the Romans, but Frederick didn't seem willing to do this. They discussed another crown for him. There were discussions about a kingdom of Burgundy, from Franche Comte or Arles, from Provence or Friesland. Charles wanted a more inclusive kingdom in the Netherlands, but nevertheless, negotiations seemed to be going well. Then, the emperor left in a hurry in the early morning in late November. Calmet writes that in addition to being overwhelmed by Charles's, quote, exorbitant demands, no doubt underhanded maneuvers carried out by Louis XI were also a contributory cause, unquote. But Vaughn dismisses this outright, laying the blame at the feet of imperial squabbles, alliances, and Frederick's reluctance butting up against Charles's obstinacy, as well as his vacillation at what exactly he'd be willing to accept. Charles didn't seem too off-put by the emperor running away in the middle of the night, and he decided it was time to put his ambitions out in the open. But first, he negotiated with the cousin of the old Duke of Lorraine, René, the new Duke of Lorraine. They negotiated a mutual defense treaty, and the two departed on very good terms. It appeared that Charles had another loyal ally in Lorraine, important flyover territory linking his northern and southern possessions. The Duke of Burgundy then made his way to Dijon in January of 1474, the first time he'd been there since being named Duke. He gave a speech at the Hotel de Ville, stating it was time for them to become a kingdom. Calmet gives a quote that Charles made at the speech. Quote, the former kingdom of Burgundy had for a long time been usurped by the French and made a duchy of France, which should give all his subjects cause for sorrow, unquote. There you have it. It's time to bring Burgundy back to its rightful place, a kingdom in Europe. Of course, the old kingdom was from Dijon south. He was really talking about making something much bigger and more focused on the north. Not that anyone in Dijon would have remembered the kingdom of Burgundy, which hadn't existed in like 500 years. In Lorraine, Charles's aunt Yolanda had inherited the territory and immediately handed it over to her own son, René. Her aged father was also a René and was the Duke of Anjou as well as the Count of Provence, so maybe that's where Charles thought he could get Provence too. If he were able to get his daughter to marry the younger René, 
Well, that would bring Lorraine into his orbit, along with the possibility of Provence. But this marriage was not meant to be. René was not interested in being a puppet for an overbearing father-in-law, and Louis encouraged this feeling in René. Charles, though he desired Lorraine, still had bigger ambitions. With his aid given to Edward IV, it was only sensible that the two would formalize their alliance. They did just that on July 25, 1474. Once again, the Duke of Burgundy was willing to give the French crown to the English king, as Edward had similar claims to the French crown through his ancestor, Edward III, as all the other English kings had. In return, Charles would be given French territories to the north and east of Paris, making his lands contiguous, and he would owe no homage to the French king Edward. But with the English seemingly ready to go and help him out with a massive landing of troops in the Low Countries, Charles acted rashly. He became involved in more conflicts on his eastern borders, which he, no doubt, should have been keeping nice and calm and friendly so nobody would bug him while he dismantled the Kingdom of France. The Swiss, really a semi-independent federation of towns within the empire that called themselves not the Swiss, but rather the Great League of Upper Germany, were, like Charles, aggressively expansionist, as we all presume about the Swiss, and they were Burgundy's neighbor. Soon conflict was pretty much inevitable. Speaking of expansionist, Charles refused to restore Alsace to Sigismund of Austria. The Habsburgs had essentially given him Alsace in exchange for a loan, which had to be given back if repaid. Charles would have none of it, and his brutal governor there suppressed the locals when they made noise. Charles had never expected the Habsburgs to have the money to recover Alsace, but a substantial loan from King Louis helped that happen. And next, of course, came the alliance between France and the Holy Roman Empire. Louis brought the Swiss in as well. Although it may well have been at their request, the Alsace affair had not made them happy. It was right in their neighborhood. Louis knew Charles was planning to destroy him, so he decided it was time to do the same to Charles. The Duke also began interfering in the Archbishopric of Cologne, trying to get his man there in power. After unsuccessful overtures, he invaded in the summer of 1474, but had to besiege the town of Nice on the way. Then, he planned to compel Cologne to surrender, most likely, rather than besiege it. But the siege of Nice did not go well for Charles. Though he had a large coalition of forces, the city held out, and Hessians had come to help relieve the defenders. Meanwhile, in November 1474, the League of Constance, mostly Austrian and Swiss forces, defeated an outnumbered Burgundian force and took Hericourt, a castle on the Franche-Comte border. The purpose of this was actually to divert Charles away from Neuss, but the siege continued into 1475, and Charles was everywhere trying to encourage his men on. He was rumored to have slept in his armor on many nights. He was a meticulous commander, always present in camp, planning out the order of battle, making sure his men were ready, all those things. He envisioned himself a new Alexander, and he did his best to play the part. In fact, despite Burgundy's link to the dying throes of the chivalric Middle Ages, Charles was an innovative military commander who in some ways helped usher in early modern warfare. Vaughan states that Charles's military ordinances were extremely influential and were applied across Europe. Quote, in a succession of remarkable documents issued between 1468 and 1476, 
several new ideas were worked out and applied. Among them, the first thorough attempt to impose rules of discipline and good conduct, the creation of permanent companies of ordnance divided into squadrons, compulsory drill, and the first maneuvers of modern time, unquote. While still besieging Noyce, there was news of an imperial army approaching, so Charles tried again to storm the city, but he was unsuccessful. Then, in May, a herald approached camp and threw down a blood-stained gauntlet. It was from René of Lorraine, and it was a challenge for war. Charles hadn't actually invaded Lorraine. Sure, it seemed inevitable, but it hadn't happened. And René and Charles had previously had a cordial, even friendly, relationship. But with his refusal to give up the mortgage of Alsace and his governor's shoddy treatment of its inhabitants, the whole neighborhood was mad at him. René joined the League of Constance, that alliance between Swiss and imperial towns in the Upper Rhine region, like Strasbourg, as well as Duke Sigismund of Austria, who was supposed to be the Lord of Alsace, in an effort to kick Charles out of the area. Back west, Louis also attacked in May, leading his forces into Picardy in a bid to further distract Charles and take the offensive to try to keep his own vassals on his side. He took a few towns but left when he heard that Edward had landed in Normandy, which wasn't true. But Edward was on the move. So was the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III, who arrived at Neuss at the end of the month. The two sides were hesitant to fight each other, and Charles eventually agreed to lift the siege because, oops, I got a date on the other side of my lands. On July 4th, Edward landed in Calais with a little more than 10,000 men. Had Charles decided at this point to ignore his lands to the east, swallowed some pride and given up Alsace, which was only in his possession through a temporary mortgage anyway, and gone to meet Edward with an army of 20,000 Burgundians, well, maybe a new phase in the Hundred Years' War would have broken out. Most of the forces to his east couldn't do much to his lands itself. It was just Charles's attempt to grab more territory. And instead, Charles decided to use most of his army to first punish René in Lorraine before then marching into Champagne, showing up with only a small contingent of troops. The English were not happy. Some sensed betrayal, but Charles smoothed things over. He convinced them to march south through Picardy and Artois into Champagne. In Champagne, Louis of Luxembourg, Count of St. Paul, would welcome them with open arms, and they could proceed to Reim for a coronation. But St. Paul's men fired upon the English, and their subsequent march through Picardy and Artois was pretty lame, as Charles wouldn't let them go into any of his fortified towns for fear of what the English might do to them. So, yeah, some welcome. Charles, meanwhile, still couldn't bring the bulk of his troops as they were tied up in the east. And his other major French ally, the Duke of Brittany, was sitting back on his heels he may have been waiting for Charles to commit before he did the same. Aragon had been quickly defeated in a battle and had signed a truce with Louis, so they had to wait till it expired. Anyway, Edward looked around and saw his allies were all talk and no action and decided maybe this whole thing wasn't worth it. Louis did his best to sway Edward, and he eventually was able to enter negotiations with the English king. In August, after marching a few hundred miles into French territory, but without directly engaging with Louis' forces, Edward agreed to a truce. It was actually a peace treaty, in which Louis gave Edward all kinds of money 
in order to leave France, and it was the last real activity of the Hundred Years' War. Some saw it as dishonorable on Edward's part, a bribe to abandon his allies and give up his designs on the throne. But, well, it's been said the Hundred Years' War killed chivalry, so maybe this treaty put the nail in the coffin. Charles wasn't there to see the negotiation. He was off trying to deal with Lorraine, which is part of why Edward felt free to negotiate. Charles raced back to talk to Edward to try to convince him to stay. Edward told him he wasn't exactly holding up his end of the bargain either. Charles left in a huff, and the alliance was kaput. So, in September, Charles instead concluded a nine-year's truce with Louis. It was just what Louis wanted. They promised not to attack each other and to renounce all alliances against each other. For Louis, that meant he would have to abandon René and send no troops to help tiny Lorraine. For Charles, it meant abandoning Aragon, but it would allow Charles to concentrate on his eastern border without fear of attacks in his west. Success in the east would make this truce a great deal for Charles. René had to be abandoned by Louis for the moment, and while he was in front of Louis begging for help, Charles marched into Lorraine from the north, while his half-brother Anthony came in from French Comte to the south. It took about two months for them to defeat any resistance before coming to the capital city of Nancy. Nancy, unlike Noyce, surrendered rather quickly, and Charles controlled all of Lorraine by the end of 1475. The Swiss, meanwhile, had been taking towns from Savoy, a close ally of Charles, which actually had lands on the western end of Lake Geneva. And they were attacking French Comte as well. Charles reached out to try to make peace with them, but, beyond being expansionists themselves, they were fearful of Charles's own attempts at expansion. When no accord was reached, the Swiss became next on Charles's list, and in January of 1476, he marched out to deal with them. Charles led an army of 20,000 in with Jacques of Savoy and first retook the town of Granson on Lake Neuchâtel. The town quickly surrendered in late 1476, and Charles executed the garrison. He hanged several hundred men. This atrocity was certainly done to make the other towns think twice before resisting the Duke. And it certainly wasn't something unique to Charles. The Swiss forces had murdered garrisons at towns they conquered as well. Charles then led his army out to take the next town, when he ran into the Swiss force which had been assembled to relieve Granson. The two armies met not far outside of the city, and the Swiss vanguard came out first. Charles made a tactical error, thinking that this vanguard was the full Swiss army. And when his first cavalry charge didn't rout them, he decided to surround them, either to finish them off with another cavalry charge or to obliterate them with his artillery. So he withdrew, but this turned into a serious blunder when during the withdrawal, the rest of the Swiss force appeared out of the forest. Most of the Burgundian army saw this happening, the new enemy appearing and what appeared to be a Burgundian retreat. And this ill-timed move turned into a panic retreat. The Burgundians weren't slaughtered to the last or anything like that. They got away with relatively light casualties, but they fled without their baggage train and well, you could imagine what was in the Duke of Burgundy's baggage train. He was the gold plates and cutlery in his tent kind of duke. A throne and a jeweled hat was among the loot. Oh, and he abandoned 500 pieces of artillery to the enemy too. The Swiss got a load of valuable items, and they embarrassed the leading duke of Western Europe. 
Of course, Charles was enraged, so any attempts of intervention to negotiate a treaty was rebuffed. But the defeat made some of his less loyal vassals question whether they really ought to be sending a whole mess of troops to help him out. His closest allies tried to convince him to take a breather, but it is reported that Charles was starting to show signs of the strain of losing the battle. That being said, Granson was not a disaster for him, so he reassembled his army. It was only slightly smaller than what he had before, and he was able to gather more artillery. He holed up in Lausanne, plotting his next move, while the Swiss launched raids into Savoy and Franche-Comte. Charles became seriously ill with stomach issues, and the sources say it was because of everything from melancholy to bad water he drank, so take your pick. He was laid out for a few weeks, but he had recovered by late May 1477. He marched out, knowing he would have to take more allied Swiss towns east of Lake Neuchâtel. His aim was probably eventually Bern, the leading Swiss town in this war. He began with the siege of Morat, or Merton in German, in June of 1477. The town held out against the initial assault, and a united army of Swiss towns, along with forces from Lorraine, led by René II, began to gather nearby. The two sides met on the 21st of June, while Charles waited on the spot of his choosing, with his back to Lake Morat. But the Swiss and the Lorrainers, Lorrainians, uh, let's say the Swiss and their allies from Lorraine, held off. Charles assumed they were delaying and trying to just fight defensively rather than attack, and he was not prepared for an all-out assault, which happened in the pouring rain around noon the next day, on June 22, 1476. The Allies may have had as many as 25,000 troops by the time they attacked, while Charles might not have had more than 10 or 12,000. The Burgundians rushed to form up their ranks. Charles hastily donned his armor, but it was too unorganized and too late. The Swiss army knifed through the front lines. Sorry. While Charles and his men were able to hold off attacks from René, the main force of Swiss halberdiers easily cut through the unprepared Burgundian lines. A retreat turned into a rout, and the Burgundians were cut to pieces, many still in their tents, many others while fleeing. Charles fled on horseback with his cavalry, while the rest of his army had to run on foot. Unfortunately, the only way they could run was either into the lake to drown or into Swiss halberds to suffer 1d10 damage. It is estimated that somewhere between five and 10,000 Burgundians and their allies were killed. There were no more than probably 12,000 at the most to begin with, so this estimate of 10 is probably high, but Vaughn says that at least a third of his force was killed, probably more, and that, quote, he was the victim of one of the most destructive and decisive battles in the military history of the Middle Ages, unquote. Now, I find that quote interesting, considering we're only 50 years removed from Agincourt, but whatever. Charles was despondent, according to some, upbeat and arrogant, according to others. He was obsessed with revenge, which, I mean, that was kind of obvious before Marat, but I assume it got worse after. The thing is, he was still in control of a vast amount of territory. He was the Duke of frickin' Burgundy. Yeah, he had been knocked down a peg, but Louis wasn't able to kick him out of France. Okay, Milan, a previous ally, went over to Louis, as did Savoy, but the Swiss weren't pushing their advance. And Louis wanted to subvert Charles, but he still wasn't prepared to fully attack him himself. Charles was still powerful. Heck, 
he could have gone to the Low Countries and stewed there while personally governing basically all of today's Belgium and much of the Netherlands, not to mention Artois and Burgundy. He could have sat there, taken his lumps, and he could have really plotted some revenge. But no, he wasn't his grandfather. That just wasn't right for Charles's idiom. He had to do things more dramatically. So in October, when René recaptured the town of Nancy, the capital of Lorraine, Charles decided he had to act. Charles had captured this a few years earlier, and while he thought it would be attacked, he thought the town could hold out. He wasn't present, but being unable to defend Nancy from René was another embarrassing blow to what had once been a truly powerful state. Burgundy's military was almost unrivaled in Western Europe, but in the last few years, it had been beaten twice by the Swiss and had now ceded the capital of Lorraine. Not to mention the fact that the English ended their alliance because the Burgundians were too busy in the east to actually do as they said and march to Paris with them. Again, Charles could have, at this point, licked his wounds back in Dijon or Bruges and continued living in lavish luxury. His army was weakened, much of his treasure was gone, but he was still the lord of the major trading towns on the Scheldt and the North Sea. He was still a prince of the blood in France. He didn't even have to just sit in luxury forever. He would still be incredibly powerful, albeit at a reduced strength. He had been greatly outnumbered in both defeats. He probably needed to take some time to raise a proper army again before trying to attack another town. But no. As it was, he was already on his way to Nancy in September when he learned that René had captured it. Charles had only taken a few thousand men. He knew that the city was strongly fortified. He was just going to increase the fortifications. But then he learned that René had taken it back. And it was strongly fortified. The hundred most sensible paths of action now all involved not going to Nancy. But Charles forged ahead, determined to recapture it. His captains told him to back off. An army was being assembled in the Low Countries. He should go get them before attacking. And René was strong. In addition to some Eastern Imperial allies, he was able to afford plenty of Swiss mercenaries in his army, thanks to generous funding by a certain totally neutral king of France. The much-diminished Burgundian army arrived in November to lay siege to Nancy. When one of his commanders told him they were greatly outnumbered, Charles replied, he'd fight alone if he had to. Another commander, the Count of Campobasso, took his men and left, joining the opposition. The one good thing for Charles that winter was that he finally agreed to have his daughter, Mary of Burgundy, married. She was officially engaged to Emperor Frederick's son, Maximilian. Perhaps if this had been done earlier, or she had been married to anyone else important earlier, Charles would have had a strong ally to help him. But it was too late for that now. He was outnumbered badly when, on January 5, 1477, Charles arrayed his army to face René's larger force and the Allies realized that the Burgundians still had a large amount of artillery. They'd be blown to bits if they attacked them head-on. So René deployed a significant amount of his force around the left of the Burgundian army. It was snowing, and they had to make their way through a forest, but this helped them do it all completely unseen. When they appeared out of the woods and engaged, Charles tried to turn to face them, but it was already too late. His army was again routed this time to the point of almost total destruction. Completely surrounded, Charles fought to the last. 
He was killed by a halberd blow from a Swiss soldier. He was 43 years old and had been Duke for about nine and a half years. With his death, all of his holdings passed to his only legitimate child, his still unmarried daughter, Mary, who was just about to turn 20 years old. Burgundy did not just fall apart, at least not yet. Charles's enemies and rivals would have to try to get what they could by going through the young Mary and her stepmother, Charles's widow, Margaret of York, if they could. And if those two were lucky, perhaps that Maximilian of Habsburg, who Charles had recently arranged for Mary to be wed, would come through. But for the moment, Burgundy was very much in trouble, and Charles was very much dead. His need to smack the Swiss around and pull Lorraine into his state was what really ended it, and ended the height of Burgundian power and prestige. He was right in thinking that adding territory in his east could greatly increase his power. And look, Lorraine was right next to Franche Comte. René could threaten him if he wasn't careful. But he underestimated just how difficult it would be. And after Morat, he went from what was a strategic blunder to just plain stupidity by staying to fight there. Meanwhile, he had literally convinced the English to come with an army of 10,000 to crush Louis, and he was too busy playing around in the East to take advantage of it. He didn't seem to have any concept of his own limitations. According to Calmette, quote, He was an impulsive man, strong-willed and sharp-tongued. He was above all an ambitious man, proud and headstrong. Restraint was foreign to his nature. Hard on himself as well as others, impatient and brutal, vindictive and hot-headed, Charles was incapable of either dealing systematically with the difficulties which faced him, or of establishing any sort of proportion between his ambitions and the means at his disposal, unquote. In English, Charles was known as Charles the Bold, like his great-grandfather, Philip the Bold. But in French, Philip is Philippe le Hardy, which might mean Philip the Bold or Philip the Daring, while Charles is Charles le Temeraire, which means something closer to Charles the Rash or Charles the Reckless, or even Charles the Foolhardy. And it was through rash, reckless, and foolhardy decisions from about 1475 when Edward landed in Calais and Charles kept besieging Neuss to 1477 and his final attack on Nancy that Charles earned his nickname, Charles the Bold, in English. Next time, we'll finish up this series by seeing what happened to the state of Burgundy after the death of Charles the Bold, who left an almost undefended state with little army to his one heir, his 19-year-old daughter Mary. Thanks for listening. <laughs>